I appreciate all you weary soldiers hanging with me for so long in the book of Romans. We still have a long way to go. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, beginning at the word for. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But, remember Paul has a contrast going here, but, there's another kind of person as well, those who live according to the Spirit, and last week we dealt with those in the flesh, But there's also somebody else here. That's who we want to concentrate on this week. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life Because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, again, there's that contrast. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Last week, we saw in these nine verses... A whole bunch of stuff, yes, but we boiled it all down. You remember that? Try to make it real simple. Paul basically contrasts two sorts of people. We have two descriptions of two categories of people through these nine verses. He is emphasizing the difference between, on the one hand, those who are in the flesh... And on the other, those who are in the Spirit. That's as simple as I can put it if you just want a basic summary. Romans 8, 5 through 13. Two descriptions, two categories of people compared side by side. Now listen to me. What is so personal and practical is this. Each one of us in this room, each one, can say with 100% accuracy, I am in the flesh, or I am in the Spirit. With 100% accuracy, every one of us can say, one Or the other. In the flesh, there is death. You see that? We read that. In the spirit, there is life and peace. Where do we all start? Do we start in the spirit? Anybody ever born in the spirit? John the Baptist born in the Spirit? Listen, we don't want to argue that. 
We start in the flesh. That's the reality. That's where we all start. By nature, that's where you are. And all you have to do is take a quick look right here at the text. And it says, in no uncertain terms, to set the mind on the flesh is death. We start out with death written across our forehead. You say, I don't see it written there. It's there. It's there. That text right there tells you it is. In the flesh, death. But by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, not all of us stay there. That's a good thing. And if you're in the flesh right now, by God's grace, you can be translated right out of that realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit and find peace in life. That's a reality. That is a reality. We wouldn't be here today if that wasn't a reality. And that is a good thing. Translated right into this kingdom where there is peace and the paradise of eternal life. Now, okay, defining some statements or defining statements. That's, that's a better way to put it. Defi Paul gives us very descript, defining statements through this portion of Scripture. I told you already, we looked at some of those defining elements of those that are in the flesh last week. This week, we're coming over to the other end of this thing. We're going to look at those defining descriptions, those defining elements of what is true about those who are in the Spirit. And so you know what I'm saying here? We're basically looking at defining statements about non-Christians and about Christians. Focused on what the non-Christian was like last week, what the Christian is like this week. Now, listen. Hear that very carefully. Defining statements. These verses define you. They define you. I'll say this again. We need God-given defining statements about ourselves because what we think we are and what we really are don't often line up. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, that's right. When I was lost, I thought I was a certain way. Remember we looked at it last week? The lost, they think they're pretty good people. Scripture says they hate God. They think that God is pleased with them. We read God is not pleased with them. We can sit back and we can say, yeah, I remember what it was like. I see these people. I encounter them all the time. They're lost. They're in the flesh. They don't understand who they are. Now, listen, I'm saying this as well about Christians. It is amazing to me how often you come across Christians who don't really realize what they are. They have misguided notions about who they are and how God views them and how they ought to view themselves. We do need, brethren, these God-given defining statements. We can miss it, folks. We can miss it. You know, somebody can say to me, well, brother, I thought, I thought Christians were blind, but now they see. Isn't that how the song goes? But hear me. You only see. You only escape blindness. In as much and in so far as you believe what this book says. Even if you're a child of God. The only way your blindness is taken away is when you see and believe what is here. That's true. We expect the lost not to believe because after all, they're unbelievers. I mean, that's exactly how they're described. But may God help us believers not to be like that. We need to really grasp what's being said here. What is true about us and what is true about us? What is? 
That's the question for today. What does the living, all-knowing God say is true about Christians? Us that are in the Spirit. It's so necessary to stress that this matters. It really matters. It does matter. You know, in these last six years, I have become more persuaded than this than ever. It matters, folks, that we understand and believe who and what we are accurately. Because I have seen over and over again that the devil takes very special pains to deceive us about what we are. And if he does, you better realize there's a reason that he would do so. There is. Folks, the devil is busy trying to trying to lead us to believe things that aren't true. But you know what the fact is? Men, I hope you will take this home with you. Men live and act and run and do and talk and die according to what they believe. They find hope. They find comfort. They find strength and courage and boldness in zeal in what they believe. Men will sacrifice and endure and suffer and stand and bear the burden only in proportion to their faith. I have seen it over and over and over again. When you believe what you are. I'm not talking this little head knowledge thing where you got this book faith where you open it up, read it and say, oh yeah, I believe that's true. It's like this stuff we looked about up here. I'm not talking about this thing that just looks at, at, these, at these situations and says, oh yeah, we realize that, but it doesn't affect you. It, does, it isn't something where, where your life is just immersed and involved in this thing. You've got to be able to take the truths of these words and step and and cast your life out there on these things when you can't see ground to step on, when you don't know any idea where you're going. You're like Abraham and he tells you, go! And you have no idea what's laying before you. You've got to look at this word and say, this is what God says is true. This is what God says I am. This is God's, how God says we are as a church, what we are in truth, in reality. And I step out on that. And the devil comes along and says, no, you're not really like that. And I have heard it in this group. And from time to time, people say things. They say, that's not how I am. Brother, I've heard you preaching from Romans. That's just not how I am. Because my experience, I'm not interested in your experience. I'm ex interested in what God says in His Word. And you believe in it and living like you believe it. That is reality. I've said this before, folks. You will only fight as well as you believe. That's the truth. Beloved, not believing cripples us. It's not believing that turns us aside from the real work of our Lord. It's not believing that keeps us from prevailing against the gates of hell. Do you think it's in the devil's best interest? To keep you from God's Word and from believing it, you can believe that. Now, as I already said, last week I described in the flesh. This week, God helping us, we turn our attention in the Spirit. Christians, Christians, are you ready? Now, if you're not a believer here today, this still pertains Lend your ear, but I'm saying this to my brethren right now, those of you that are children of God. Are you ready to believe what God says about you? What He says. Not what others say. Not what men say. But really, what God says is true. Okay, here we go. My objective this morning, I want to use these nine verses, Romans 8, 5 through 13, to define the Christian in verse 9. You guys have your Bibles open to Romans 8. Don't leave there. Keep them open the whole time right there. In verse 9, Paul refers to Christians as those who are what? It's plain. Verse 9. What are Christians plainly referred to as there? Being what? In the Spirit. But what does that mean? And that's where we want to go today. What does that phrase mean? What is it that defines one who is in the Spirit? Or to be a Christian? How should we that are in the Spirit think of ourselves? 
So we'll look at these verses. I want to just pull out five, five distinct realities. Now here, five realities that are absolutely true. Not to be debated. They're true now. They're scriptural. They're factual. They're valid. They're God-sent, invaluable certainties that describe and define every true in the spirit Christian. You say, is there another kind? No, if you're a true Christian, you are an in the spirit Christian. And I want to point out another thing. If any one of these five things is true about you, all five things are true about you. If even one of these things is not true about you, then none of the five is true about you. All five stand or fall together. I'll tell you right now. Somebody here is going to say, hey, wait a second, brother. I'm looking in this text. I find at least eight or nine things. Look, there are more than five. I'll tell you that right now. But unless you guys want to be here till the sun sets, we can't deal with more than five today. In fact, we'll do well to get you guys into lunch at a decent hour as it is probably. So, not really. You guys just relax. Take these in. Here they are. Spirit-possessing. God-pleasing. Law-keeping. Christ-belonging. And sin-killing. Here we go. First thing is that Christians are spirit-possessing. Can you see that in verse 9? Look there. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, mark well that if, there is a defining condition, if, in the fact, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him does not belong to Christ. Do you guys see that? Here's one of the clearest statements in the New Testament concerning what a Christian is. What defines a person who is in the Christian? The Spirit of God indwells them. Is there anybody here who does not see that? Raise your hand. We are so used... To... Guys! Christian! We are so used to hearing that. Let it sink for a moment. Let that just sink in. The Spirit of God dwells in you. I fear we've lost the sense of wonder and enormity of such a statement. The least of God's children possess the gift of indwelling deity. It's, he's in me. Me. Who drank sin like water, and I can come to the place in life where I can actually say, a person of, of the very Godhead exists in me. That's where I get spirit possessing from. What a tremendous thought! What other religions offer this? Does Hinduism. Does Islam? What other religion offers us a statement like this? Jesus Christ said this. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. No other religion offers this. None. But Christianity itself. But hold on. What is the real significance of having the Spirit dwell in you? Now, I think you guys can leave Romans 8 just this one time. Go over to 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to see something here. This might help us. I mean, I want us to get, get our teeth in, sink into this. What does this mean to have the Spirit of God dwell in me? What does that do for me practically? 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3, an interesting statement. 
while there is jealousy. Now you remember, Paul's rebuking the Corinthians here. While there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Now notice what he says next. Because he equates this to something. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now the New King James says right there, behaving like mere men. Isn't that interesting? You say, where are you going, brother? That doesn't tell me anything about having to... Just hold on. Paul is equating the flesh with being merely human. Being merely a man. Paul doesn't say they were behaving in a sinful way, though that would have been true if he had said that, but he says in a human way. Do you guys see the significance of that? To be indwelt by the Spirit of God is to be plucked up out of the realm of the flesh. And for that to happen, because the realm of the flesh is equated with mere manhood. Only humanity. Do you realize what's happening when the Spirit of God indwells us and plucks us up out of that realm? What is it that's happening? Do you realize what being a Christian means? It means I no longer live on the merely human level. I am supra-human. I live above the natural. Listen, one of the basic, most essential aspects of Christianity is that Christian living is by its essence supernatural life. That's what it means to have this Spirit of God dwelling within us. We're above and beyond the common. This defines us as Christians. We live on another plane. The Spirit of Christ lives in us and brings about changes that could never and would never be made without Him. There is a difference, a radical difference between Christian and non-Christian. And it goes way beyond the ideas we have in our head. Way beyond. Radical. Not a matter of what so many think Christianity is. The very presence of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, a real person of glorious magnificence lives in us. I'll tell you this. This is why sin will not and cannot have dominion over you. That's why. He's there. This is why you were once slaves of sin and you become obedient from the heart. You ever hear that? That's Romans 6, folks. I, I mean... It, I want you guys to grasp what I'm saying to you. If the Spirit of God indwells you, you know it. He brings about substantial transformation. The difference between what it was like without Him and what it's like with Him is so massive that there is only one possibility. It is great change. Now, I told, I told you, I wrote Brother Freddie, and you guys... You're living in your house, wherever you live. Now, if Brother Freddie all of a sudden takes up residency in your house, are you going to notice? And I mean, I'm talking the guy is in the kitchen with you, in the bathroom with you, in the bedroom with you, on the sofa with you. Are you going to notice? I mean, a person cannot take up permanent residency with you without you noticing. And I'm only talking about Freddie. Not to diminish the value of Freddy, but imagine Freddy if all of a sudden you juiced him up with enough light to light a midnight football field bright as noonday and you put such heat in him that wherever he was, the temperature went up 40 degrees. Now would you notice his presence? 
And we're talking about the fiery presence of the living Spirit of Jesus Christ comes and indwells. And we got people walking around that, ah, my life is just pretty much like it's always been. You're not saved. Don't even say such a thing. You can't be saved. This Spirit brings radical change, differences, transformation. Folks, Oh, folks, when that occurs, things happen that move us way beyond the merely human. Way beyond. If you do not have a supernatural existence, you're not a Christian. Lay that down. It's a fact. Paul's teaching us that right here in Romans chapter 8. It is a fact. Now, I want to make, I need to make this clear to you. Oh, this is, this is. So important. Our Christianity is not simply you sit down and read in a book, you got the ideas, and now you go on with your life and it's just the same thing all over again. You say the little prayer. This, do you, let, me, let me ask you something. If Freddie lived in your house, would you experience something different? Yes! True Christianity is experiential. You say, I don't like that. I like doctrine. Don't tell me about experience. It sounds very charismatic. Well, then you don't know about true Christianity. The true Christianity is real. It's living. It's experiential. It's life-changing. It's drastic and dramatic and radical. And if you don't like that, you don't like real Christianity. That's the way it is. But let me make this very clear. The Spirit that indwells the true child of God and makes you one who's truly in the Spirit, that Spirit... Jesus Christ said would be sent here to you. To exalt Jesus Christ. You say, does the Bible say that? Yeah, oh yeah. It's, it says that. When the Spirit of truth comes, John 16, 13, and into 14, He will glorify me. Don't ever miss that. To be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ is to have a living person indwelling you whose goal and purpose is intently focused on magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. When I say that possessing the Spirit is experiential and felt and real and known and observable, what I mean is that you will experience real love for Christ. You will feel that He is the chief object of your affections. Where it wasn't true before, there will be a real longing existing to have more of Him. He will be in all reality that treasure for which you will sell everything else. There will be an observable longing present to please Him. You will ache to be like Him. You will yearn for His Word. You will desire to know Him you want to know what produced in Paul this? Oh, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. You know what makes that kind of thinking surge through your veins? Is being indwelt by the Spirit whose sole mission in you is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Your chief joys will center around His person and His work. He will be your hope, your salvation, your redemption, your righteousness, your sanctification. You will find joy. I'm talking real joy. I'm not talking about the happiness you had when you went to the party and got drunk. I'm talking a deep-seated joy that when you wake up in the morning, it's not all emptiness now. It is a lingering, it is a, it is a compelling joy that goes with you and it's on, it ebbs and it flows, but it's always increasing, it's there. You come to, you know, week after week, what is it that makes us sing like this? Is it because, you know, we got the piano and it makes us all happy? That's not it. It's because we look at that and we see Christ in those songs. It ignites something. It's supernatural. The Spirit of God says, Yes, Brother Charles. Yes, Brother John. This is real. This is living. There's an affection that springs out. There's joy that wells up. It's not true. It's just some mechanical, just some theoretical, not just some intellectual. It's not, folks. It's not. Okay, and I took a long time on that, so we're going to move fast. Second, God-pleasing. 
The second reality about being in the Spirit is this. That person is God-pleasing. Well, where is that in these verses? Well, although it's not explicitly stated, it's definitely implied. Look at verse 8 and 9, but we'll start in 8. Read them with me. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. Can it be clear? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not like that. That's the whole point here. You aren't like those who cannot please God. Christian, are you getting this? Are you believing this? That God is pleased with you. Maybe this isn't clear enough for some of you. Okay, then consider this. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go through several of these. Psalm 149.4 For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. Or how about this? Does this sound like pleasure to you on God's part? Zephaniah 3.17 God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some of you still not sure? How about this one? As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 65, 19. I will be glad in my people. You guys know Luke 15? What happens when that shepherd finds the lost sheep and puts him on his shoulders? Does he say he's all disgusted, disappointed, and put out? It says he rejoices. He rejoices. <clears throat> Rejoice with me, he says, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Christian, I know sometimes you don't think that way. You imagine God distant and cold. That's Allah! That's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! And sometimes we imagine God to be impersonal. But that's... that's not our God. That's like the Hindu gods or the Roman gods or the Greek gods. I've read about the natives in certain places, you know, in the Indonesian islands and sort, where they, they're always cowering and bringing their sacrifices because they're scared to death of these angry gods. What freedom there is, folks. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. Sometimes we're almost afraid to believe that that is true because we think it might be presumptuous. That's a devil's lie. It is not presumptuous. God wants you to know He's pleased with you and because He's pleased with you, do you guys see? When I walk down the street, when I go to Sutton Homes, I can trip and I can fall. I can sin. And that doesn't mean I freely relish in it. Because if the Spirit of God is there, He's killing the dominion of it. But I can fall. I can trip. I can make mistakes. And I can run. Why? Because I don't have to mope around and get in this puddle of despair. Because I can be certain of this. For Christ's sake, God is pleased with me. I'm not beaten down by this law all the time. And if I trip, I stub my toe and I mess up, I can still run in joy. Oh, I can weep the tears and I can repent of it. But I can still go on. I can run. I can go. This is liberating. Folks, what's so liberating about this is I change. I do trip. I do make mistakes. But Jesus Christ is the same forever. And it's because of Him that God is pleased with me and accepts me. He doesn't change. So what if I do? He's still pleased with me. You see what liberty, what freedom. I mean, run, folks. You trip. Okay. He's pleased with you. Get up and run again. It's glorious. Third, law keeping. If you're in the Spirit, 
You're spirit-possessing, God-pleasing, but they're also, thirdly, law-keeping. Where do I find that, you might ask? Well, again, it's by way of contrast here. Not, not directly, but we get it by way of contrast. Notice verse 7 through 9. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh, that is the mindset of those who are in the flesh, right? Those who are in the flesh, they have this mindset that is set on the flesh. It's hostile to God. We looked at that last week. Hostile, enmity. It's hatred to God. For it, and, that, and it shows itself by the very fact it does not submit to God's law. And as I emphasized then, don't ever tell me you love God, but you're running around breaking His laws all the time. You're, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. But here's this. People like that in the flesh, indeed, they, they cannot keep that law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, folks, do you see that the very contrast in these verses presses us with the reality that whatever is true about those in the flesh, the very opposite is true about those in the Spirit. That is the weight of verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh. What is true about those in the flesh is not true of you for the very reason that you are not in the flesh. In verse 8, we see that those in the flesh don't submit to God's law. But Christians, by contrast, are not in the flesh. So what's the conclusion? They do keep the law. They're clearly those who do. This is exactly what we saw right back up in verses 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Here it is. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, not for us, in us. In us. I'm not denying for a second that Christ has met the law's demands for us. But in addition, He has so wondrously saved us that the righteous requirement of the law becomes a daily reality in our lives. Christian, do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that by and large... The reigning characteristic of your life is to be a law keeper. You know what? If you say no, I think in reality, I'm still someone who walks around all the time defeated by sin, wretched, and unable to do good. I'll tell you this. You have just denied the very tenets of the new covenant. You have. Listen to what it says. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't it amazing how he's going to put his spirit within him and cause him to keep the law? Do you see what Paul's doing right here in Romans 8? He's pulling these very tenets of the new covenant right out of here. That's what he's doing. He's showing us in Jesus Christ we have those things that were promised in the new covenant. Christian, did you notice anything here that would lead you to believe that this only might happen or rarely happens? My Bible says God's Spirit is going to cause you to walk in the laws of God with such faith. And such frequency that it will be characteristically true of you to say that you are a law keeper. Now listen, the Christian's law keeping is not like the outward obedience of a slave chained to its master's harsh list of demands. We are specifically told we are not under the ministration of death, that ministration of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says... Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom means I'm not acting against my will. The idea here, folks, is that Christians have Spirit-given desires for righteousness and good. 
He makes us want to do right, love to do good, long for purity. Most religion is about people taking a list of do's and don'ts and then gritting their teeth and trying to do the good things they really don't want to do and not do the evil things they really love to do. But that isn't Christianity. The Spirit isn't just... The Spirit is not just outside us barking commands at us. Some of you live that way. You feel that. Your Christianity is not joyful. It's more like servile, slavish. That's not how it is in Christianity. The Spirit of God doesn't bark commands at us from outward. He's inside working desires in the very heart to want to do what's right. He writes it on the heart. He compels us from motives of love. Motives of appreciation. Yes, sometimes there's constraints. And we feel pressed and we feel pulled and we feel moved by the Spirit. But it's something welling up within and moving us. Yes, sometimes we come in under conviction and we feel ashamed and we need to repent. But the Spirit is doing this inside. We're not under that old ministration of death anymore. So, fourth, I'm Christ's belonging. Paul says Christians are Christ's belonging in verse 9. Notice it. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, to Christ. You don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. If you do have the Spirit... You belong to Him. Christian, you belong to Jesus Christ. Sometimes such simple statements, and yet, if you just let them ring in your ears a couple times, I belong to Jesus Christ. And if you do, there's an attachment. He's not way off and far away and unconcerned. Look what happens in verse 9. The Spirit is first called by what title? In verse 9. The Spirit is first called the Spirit. You guys all see that? You guys see that? Okay. And then you move a little further along and you find that the Spirit is called the Spirit of God. Then the Spirit of Christ. And then something very interesting happens. At the start of verse 10, Paul says, But if Christ is in you, the Spirit communicates so much of Christ and the Spirit's presence is so essentially one with the presence of Christ that Paul feels no qualms whatsoever about interchanging the terms here. This is really no different than what we found in John 14, 16. Remember this. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. You get to verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That is a phenomenal. The helper, the spirit of truth is given. Yet Jesus says, I will come to you. Do you see what all this means? Christ gives His Spirit to you, binding you to His presence. Life in the Spirit means a life where the presence of Christ is real. Christian, give yourself time to ponder and rejoice in these types of things. You belong to Christ. You're attached to Christ. You're never without Christ. Never far from Christ. He's never distant from you. Christian, Jesus Christ is interested in you. He's for you, not against you. He is with you, inseparable from you. You are His. He is yours. It's always, it's forever. See Him there, robed in all authority and power and majesty, saying, Behold, I am with you. 
always. Not with the guy down the street. I'm with you. Take courage, brethren. He's with us. He spilled His blood for us, for you. And He's with you. That's what Christianity is. This is the real thing. It goes way beyond just a book knowledge kind of religion, folks. Spirit possessing, God pleasing, law keeping, Christ belonging. There's one more. I'm going to throw it in here quick. In the Spirit, you are sin killing. Verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, Christian, I want to ask you this again. Do you really believe that about yourself? I've heard some of you say that you have certain sins you just can't conquer. Or your bad marriage is just the way it is. That's how it's always going to be. Or I'm this way or I'm that way and I just can't do anything about it. I want to ask you something. Does verse 13 say anything to you? Folks, there is only one path to eternal life. And I'll tell you this. It isn't eating Doritos, sitting on your rear end watching TV, getting fat and sloppy. The living Spirit of God does this. He puts a fierceness in His people. A violence in a man. Not violence, not fierceness towards men, towards others. But there is a fierceness toward every impulse to look at a woman with lust. To crave those idols that so easily beset us in this run. The Spirit of God. Now notice, we put them to death. It's by the power of another. So ultimately, He's the one doing it. It's His power, not ours. But we've got to do it. And I'm telling you folks, it's the only way to life. You tell me you're a Christian, but these things are not happening in your life. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about that, folks. What does it say? It says you better be put to death the deeds of the flesh or what? There's no two ways about this, folks. If the Spirit of God is in you, by that Spirit's power, you are putting to death sin. There is a holy violence in you. Jesus Christ Himself said, it is the violent who take the kingdom by storm. You must rip out eyes and cut off hands and cut off feet to go into life. That is a violent, sin-killing picture that we have in the Word of God. You will not get to life any other way. Listen, don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. The Spirit of God does not come in and let you sleep in bed and make love to your sins. He won't. He is a Holy Spirit and when He comes in, He'll put such a fierceness in your heart. You will do radical things to cut off those idols. Christianity is radical. I told you, this is a real thing. It is living and it is alive. These things I'm talking about are things we feel, things we weep through, things we repent through, things that tear us up, things we fight against and struggle against and hit over and pound that thing and hit it. That's real Christianity. Life in the Spirit. This isn't for people looking to play games. You've got a lot of people running around saying they're Christian, but they have no militant mentality about the Christian life. If you don't have this spirit, you might just be able to live that kind of life. It's all a game. It's all a toy. There's nothing real, nothing serious, nothing wartime about this. This is what it's like. And I'll tell you this, boil it all down to this, folks. You know what the Word of God says? Word of God says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, the Spirit of God comes by faith. Mm-hmm. Hebrews chapter 11 says, 
it is impossible to please God without faith. You know what? We're spirit possessors. Comes by faith. We're God pleasers. Comes by faith. Law keepers. You know what the law is? The fulfilling of the law is love. You know where love comes from? Galatians 5, 6. Faith, which works through love. Possessed by Christ. One with Him. He dwells in our hearts by faith. You kill sin. Fight sin. Resist sin. By faith. Moses put away the pleasures of that sin. I'm telling you, it all comes down to this. We are people that live by faith. We believe what God has said. We walk in that faith. We look to that cross. Our faith is in the Son of God. You know what? You find in the Scriptures, that faith says this, I believe with my whole heart that Jesus Christ died for me. Not for the whole world. For me. I believe He died for me. I believe He lives to intercede for me. I bank my whole soul and life and trust on the Christ who was hung upon that cross. He did it for me. I believe it and I run in that faith. And that's how all these things come to us. Folks, it's by faith in the Son of God. Well, I was exhausted when I started. Now I am very exhausted. But I'll tell you this. This is worth preaching about. Because I don't want an imitation. I don't want to be in a church that has the imitation. Folks, if we're going to cut loose and fly like eagles, and we're going to affect this city, and we're going to affect this world, we've got to be people of faith. You've got to believe what God says in His Word. Father, please... Please, Lord, give us greater faith. Amen.